Hello, everyone. Evan Wickham here from Park Hill Church, San Diego. So glad you're tuning into the podcast. We are celebrating five years as a church in San Diego. This Christmas Eve is our five-year anniversary. It's hard to believe. And God's faithfulness to this church has been so amazing. And we are celebrating by encouraging our community to grow in generosity and giving to Park Hill Church. So I just want to say at the beginning of this teaching, if this podcast has been a blessing to you, if the teachings out of Park Hill Church have helped you and equipped you in your life of discipleship to Jesus, we would love to invite you to prayerfully consider giving a year-end, five-year gift to Park Hill Church through our website, parkhillsd.church. All right, let's get to the teaching. Revelation 20. Verses 1 through 15. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of, the, the lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So to step into Advent, we're going to wait. Every Sunday of Advent, we're going to be still after the scriptures are read to both celebrate that Jesus came and to wait and anticipate his second coming that we all long for. So if you could, just be still. Holy Spirit, come. We long for you to come and make all things new. So we're silent.
Heavenly Father, we are your children. We who trust in the work of Christ on the cross and his resurrection, we have your Holy Spirit. We have your promise that you will come again. We long for that coming because we see darkness and light every day. We see mixture. So come, end the suffering, save, heal, and thank you for promising that you will. We trust that you will. So in celebration and anticipation, we wait and rejoice. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Blessed Advent to you. Uh, again, it's the first Sunday. Advent means arrival. For 1,500 years, the Advent season has been a time of the church looking back at the work of the cross and thanking God, and then looking forward, anticipating his second coming, when Jesus will defeat death. It's literally the death of death and Satan that we're longing for. The death of death and Satan. And that's actually what Revelation 20 is all about. Jacob just read it. Revelation 20 is all about the death of death, the end of Satan. To be a Christian is to confess that one day Jesus Christ will physically return and end all evil and launch us into a forever wedding feast, right? That's what it means to be a Christian, is to confess that. And so that's why our theme, this, this Advent, our theme is a question, what are we waiting for? As Jesus followers, we're literally following Jesus into a deathless world. And that's what the last three pages of Revelation are all about. Revelation 20, 21, and 22. They don't just wrap up the book of Revelation. They actually show us where the whole Bible has been leading us this whole time. So as we come to the Bible's last three pages, the writers of the Bible, they intend us to have the first three pages in our minds. Does anyone know what happens on the first three pages of the Bible? Creation, right. God, God creates everything and he plants a garden home where he lives with his human family but his family listens to the serpent, Satan, right? And then his family messes up creation. Now in the last three pages, it's like reversed. It's new creation. God destroys the serpent for good and God replants heaven and earth together in a garden-like city. It's like the original fall narrative is being retold and reversed where we live with God forever. That, that's chapter 21 and 22 next week. But today we hit chapter 20, which shows us the ultimate end of evil. We long for this, you guys. Now, chapter 20 is very, <laughs> it's a very debated chapter. Um, it's where we get the idea of the millennium. Have you heard of the millennium? All right, the millennium, which sparks a lot of debate amongst God's good, good and godly people, debate the millennium. So it's really helpful for us to keep the main plot in mind. Here it is, the main plot. What's the plot of Revelation? It's not the revelation of the war of the worlds. It's not even primarily the revelation of end times. Um, the revelation, this plot of Revelation, you have, you have slide five here. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation pulls back the curtain to reveal the greatest unseen reality of the present moment is a slain lamb sitting on a throne in the center of the universe right now. 
And the point of Revelation is to bring you comfort and encouragement for every generation of Jesus followers, not just the last end generation, but every era is, is to be encouraged by seeing Jesus fresh, afresh. This is how Revelation is intended to be read by every generation following Jesus. In fact, um, in, my, in my view, my take on Revelation, and many New Testament scholars agree, chapters 1 through 20 of Revelation are not primarily about the future, but they're about King Jesus in the present and how strong he is to take us into the future. And, and so let's keep that in mind as we look at chapter 20 this morning. So here's the plan. We're going to make 17 observations. Just kidding. Seven. If I said seven first, you might have thought that was a lot. That was psychology right there. So, so we're going to look at seven observations. And they'll go pretty quick. There's one that we're going to camp out on, but then the rest go pretty quick. And, and they help us answer, what are we waiting for? As Jesus followers, what are we living in? What's, what's our hope? Really, substantially, what's our hope? Spoiler alert, the big answer is the new heavens and new earth. That's what we're waiting for. But before we get there, seven life-changing realities for people who follow the Jesus of the apocalypse. Remember, the apocalypse means the revelation, the unveiling. We follow him. So, so number one, starting in verse one, Revelation 20 says, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding a great chain in his hand. So right away, number one, when we follow Jesus, we follow the one who has already overcome the enemies of life. Already. Right away in verse one. How do we know this? Because we see an angel, a messenger of Jesus, already holding the keys. He's already got the keys in his hand. The keys to the abyss. The darkness. Why does the angel have the keys? Because Jesus has already won. Next slide. Jesus has already won the victory over the enemies of life. We are not waiting for Jesus to come and win the victory. We are waiting for him to come and apply the victory, but not to win it. Jesus has already won it. He's already overcome the power of sin and evil and death at the cross and resurrection. So that's number one. And here's number two. When we follow Jesus, we follow the one who has already bound Satan. He's already limited Satan. Look at verse two and three. Here's where it says this. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who's the devil or Satan. Look, he has four, four, word, four titles for Satan. Very clear. This is the bad guy that Jesus has seized uh, and, and, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him in the abyss, locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. We are not waiting for Jesus to come and bind Satan. Satan is already bound, which means he's limited. His jurisdiction has been hedged. He's not destroyed yet. That's what we're waiting for. That's what verse 10 is all about. Look at verse 10. Skip ahead. It says, And the devil who deceived him was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, or the beast and false prophet were thrown. They'll be tormented forever. So that's the ultimate end of Satan that we're waiting for. But you guys, right now, Satan's already bound, which means his authority is limited. So right away, you might have questions. You're like, wait, 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 Evan. What do you mean Satan's already bound? Like, what about the millennium? Or the thousand years. If you're saying Satan's already bound, then are you saying the millennium already happened? 
or that we're in the millennium now, or is it still future? These are great questions. So can we put verses two and three back on the screen? Slide 12 here. It says, he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent. Here's where all the debates come in. He sees Satan, bound him for a thousand years, threw him in the pit, locked it to keep him from tricking the nations anymore until the thousand years are over. And after that, he must be set free. So, so right there, that verse, this, this chunk is where this big idea of the millennium comes from. So before we go any further, we have to deal with the millennium. Happy Christmas, Merry Advent, millennium. We're going to go there. Uh, just what you want to talk about around the Thanksgiving table moving into Christmas. So it actually is very important. 1,000 years, the millennium. There's a lot of debate about what this is all about, this text. Tons of debate. And it's very sad that a lot of the debate has led to division. So we have, you know, premillennialists, postmillennialists, amillennialists, and then panmillennialists. Those are the those who just throw up their hands and say, it'll just all pan out. I don't care. Panmillennialist. I'm a panmillennialist. It'll just pan out. I don't care. So, so maybe that's you. If, if so, I would say this is actually really important to think about. Um, I'm not going to tackle all the issues of the debate for this teaching. For that, you can go back to the table and there's a book, the Daryl Johnson book. It's that red one. Uh, I'll simply refer you to his chapter 26, Millennial Madness Made Manageable. <laughs> That's the chapter. I love that title. So what I want to do right now, I'm just going to briefly give you an eight-minute crash course on the Millennium text, because once, you re once we realize how it works in, in Revelation, it, it inspires celebration. You celebrate what, what Jesus' followers are participating in. It's really beautiful. So first, here we go. First thing about how this Millennium text works. It's actually the perfect thing to talk about at Advent. So, so remember what we've been saying through Revelation. All the numbers in the book of Revelation, are they statistics or symbols? Symbols, yeah. The numbers in Revelation are not scientific. They're symbolic, all of them. Uh, so 1,000 years, statistic or symbol? Symbol. 1,000 years is symbolic. Why do I say this? Because throughout the Bible, the number 10 is a number of completeness or complete set. Seven is another number like this, and 10 is similar. It refers to a whole count. 10 fingers, 10 toes, 10 commandments. These are all mentioned in the Old Testament several times. And there's plenty of other tens mentioned in the Old Testament, and it carries this sense of right count, full complete set. So, so here's a one-stop slide to just help you with this. Uh, 1,000 years is, 10 times 10 times 10, which is a really complete time. It's, it's done. It's complete. So, so it doesn't mean a literal length of 1,000 years, though it could mean that. It could actually be that, but it could also be more than that. As Dr. Bashirs puts it, the best way to read the 1,000 years is as a right time of righteousness. The point is, however long, it's complete. It's enough time for God to complete his complete purpose in the world. So that's, that's, the, that's the thousand. And the second thing on how this fits with the rest of the book, if you remember the beginning of the series, I gave some guidelines on how to read Revelation well. 
on its own terms, not reading our newspaper modern thinking into Revelation, but how does Revelation ask us to read it? And one of these guidelines is we need to ask the right questions about time. So as you read through Revelation, the question is not, what happens next? What happens next for us? That's not the question. The question is, what did John see next? As Revelation unfolds, John doesn't say, and then this is going to happen, and this, and this happened, and then he doesn't say that. He says, and I saw, and I saw, and I saw. Because what John sees next may or may not happen next. So when it comes to the millennium text, Revelation 20, the first half, pay attention to what John sees before it and what he sees after it. What does he see? Right on both sides of the millennium text, John sees war. People and powers gathering to fight Jesus. So we have two war texts on either side of the millennium text. So see the millennium in the middle, and then before, there's the beast and the kings gathering against Jesus. And then after, you have Satan gathering with Gog and Magog, two entities and both. So in both war texts, they're very similar. The war is never fought because it doesn't need to be fought. The war for the world is already fought and won by the Lamb on the cross at Good Friday. In both war texts, Jesus just shows up, speaks, and it's over, both, in both stories. So the millennium is bookended by these two very similar war stories. What's going on here? Is John saying there's gonna be two wars at the end of the world, two? Do all the forces of evil gather against Jesus twice? I personally don't think so. My view and many others is this, John is speaking twice about the same fight. At the very end, Jesus Christ, who already won the battle for the world on the cross, he will simply show up, speak, and it's done. That's John's point. So he says it twice like a good teacher, you know? So now we're left with an obvious question. Maybe this is your question. Well, then what's the millennium in the middle? What is that all about? Well, it seems to me, since 1,000 years is a symbolic number, just like every number in Revelation, it symbolizes the complete set of time between the first advent of Jesus and the second advent, his first and second comings. Why do I say this? Because remember, these two war stories are talking about the same ending war from two different angles, which means the millennium in the middle refers to this our time, this messy moment we're in, leading up to the end. So, before I start a mini war, <laughs> right here at Park Hill of the different views, um, let me remind everyone, I'm aware I could be completely wrong about this. This is, in no way, should be a dividing issue in the church. Sadly, many churches have divided over this. In the past, I've been part of churches where if you, if you don't believe the right version of the millennium, you're fired, basically. Um, and, and that was mostly after all the Left Behind books came out in the 80s and 90s. And because before that, you guys, this was a much more open discussion between good and godly people. So that said, my leaning is 60-40, maybe 70-30 right now. It's, it's that the 1,000 years symbolizes our current moment between Jesus' two comings. 
And, and finally, one last reason I think this is because of the way Revelation, the whole ending of Revelation is structured to point to this. It's in the form of a chiasm. We've already talked about this with Revelation 1. It's, it's where there's like mirror images of complementary stories all leading to the middle. See, here's the example. See in chapter 17 and 18, goodbye, old city. See you, Babylon. And, I, and he, calls him a harlot. he calls Babylon a harlot. And then the last two chapters, hello, new city, the bride. And you move in, chapter 19, the divine warrior judge comes on a white horse. That word white is there. And then, and then B, look at the bottom B. The divine warrior judge comes on another, a white throne, though, now. And then the C's, judgment, two, two bad guys are judged, beast and false prophet. And then chapter 20, two bad guys are judged, Gog and Magog. And then in the middle, you have reflective images of the 1,000 years. Satan is bound and the children of God reign. So, so this is how the last six chapters of Revelation are, are structured. Uh, and, and so I see mirroring the same reality, not chronologically listing a whole end time line thing, but mirroring the same reality. So it seems to me this is the best way to honor how the millennium text works in the whole book of Revelation. And so John Stott, how many of you heard that name? John Stott, one of the most well-respected Bible teachers of the last 200 years. He passed away 11 years ago. And, and this was John Stott's reading. This was his reading. Here's what he says about Revelation 20. He says, in, in Revelation 20, in the millennium text, John is recapping his story from the beginning. With these 15 verses of Revelation 20, he retells the outline of church history between the first and second comings of Christ. So there it is, eight-minute crash course on the millennium, which brings us back to the main point. You guys, the millennium points to reality that you live in if you trust Jesus. We live in this reality together. If you follow the Lamb with your whole life, then you live in a universe where the Lamb has already bound Satan and Satan's influence is limited in your life. Right now. You don't have to wait for that victory to live in that. Now, now Satan still has power to deceive nations, but even that power is bound. This is why John can say in verse three that Satan can no longer deceive nations right now fully because if Satan wasn't bound, his deception would be total. There'd be no hope we can see. But we do see hope because every person who believes in Jesus is another sign that the deceiver is bound. Every person that comes to Jesus is another limit in Satan's kingdom. The Apostle Paul praises God the Father for rescuing us, quote, from the dominion of darkness. That's a big limit on Satan. And transferring us into the kingdom of, of his beloved son. Whenever a person steps into the light and believes in Jesus as the light of the world, it's another sign that the prince of darkness has been bound. May many people come to the light next week as Andrew Palau preaches the gospel with clarity. And we will see Satan's power diminish. So this raises a question. If Satan is bound, why is there so much havoc? Well, for one thing, most of the havoc in the world today is us. <laughs> Don't blame Satan for all of it, right? Hunger, that's us. War, that's us too. 
We don't need Satan to explain all our havoc. Also, according to Revelation, yes, Satan is bound and limited, but he can still manipulate his beasts. Satanic political powers, corrupt governments, right? And satanic religious powers. So picture a kingpin, like a mafia or drug cartel kingpin. You put the kingpin behind bars and he still gets to make his call, right? And his minions still do his dirty work. So Satan's forces can still wreak havoc, but not total havoc because none of them are stronger than Jesus. So number three, these will go quicker. When we follow Jesus, we follow the one who has already brought you to life. Already, key word. Here's the verses. It says, I saw the souls of those who've been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. This is John's way of saying the faithful witnesses all over the world. And they had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead didn't come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they'll be priests of God. You guys, they came to life already. <laughs> they share in the first resurrection already. Who's he talking about? That's us, you guys. Faithful Jesus followers from every generation. So what's the first resurrection that we all share in? It seems to me the first resurrection is the resurrection of Jesus. There's only two resurrections, guys. The resurrection of Jesus followed by the resurrection of everyone who follows Jesus. Sharing in the first resurrection, you guys, that's following Jesus filled with the resurrection power of the Spirit. Men and women who trust the cross and resurrection of Jesus and now live as his family in the world. That's what it means to share in the first resurrection. Jesus says it this way. He, the same, many believe the same John who wrote Revelation also wrote this, John's Gospel. Jesus says this, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Question, is that a statement about your future or present reality? Doesn't have to be rhetorical. Is, is that a statement about your future or is that a present tense statement about your current situation? Present, you guys. That's, that's now. Who believes in Jesus has crossed over from death to life. Now. Not just at the end. Now. We're not waiting for Jesus to bring us to life. Yes, we are waiting for new physically resurrected bodies. That's also what we are waiting for. This is why the second death has no power over us in verse 6. The second death would be not rising. <laughs> But we're not waiting for Jesus to share his resurrection life with us. It's already happening now. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, even as our bodies decay, we're being made alive. And so number four, when we follow the Jesus of the apocalypse, we follow the one who has already called his followers to reign with him. Look at verse six. They will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Years. So if you take the view, as I currently do, 
that the 1,000 years refers to kingdom reality, then guess what? We have a job to do. It's our deep honor to reign with Jesus as heaven citizens on earth. And we do this by being with the king, becoming like the king, and doing what the king did in the world all the way till the king returns in person to fully bring his kingdom. You guys, we're not waiting to reign with him. We're not waiting for him to share his authority with us. He's already done it. And now we're called to live like it. That's what Paul's whole letter to the Ephesians is about. The first three chapters, establishing present reality. You are seated in the heavenly places with Christ. And then the last three chapters of Ephesians, so walk in it. If you're seated in the throne, now walk in the authority. This is how he says it in Ephesians 2. God raised us up with Christ, seated, seated us. He has seated us. Present reality or future? You are seated. You are seated and promoted to royalty in heaven's jurisdiction. Now, as a, as a physical citizen of America or San Diego or Mexico or France or whatever, I see different nationalities in here. And, and so uh, in Christ, in order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness. You guys, that is a statement about your present if you are a follower of Jesus. Now, come on. So as followers of Jesus, we are already raised up and reigning. How? Just like Jesus is. Through serving, through servant love. The high King Jesus enthroned in heaven has never stopped being the servant of all. Think about that. He reigned on earth by dying for his enemies, forgiving them as they executed him. That's how he became king. You think we become reigning any differently. The king of kings is so secure in his father's love that he's perfectly free to serve everybody. And he invites us to reign with him in that exact same way, serving. You guys, one of the greatest secrets of history is that money doesn't really make the world go round. Servants do. Servants make the world go round. Actually, Jesus makes the world go round because he's the servant of all, but we join him in making the world go round by joining him in serving and loving. That's why elected officials are called public servants. At least they're supposed to be. You know, it's why it's so tragic when they're not serving, but when they're not servants, but tyrants, that's why the world goes to pot so quickly. Because built into our society is this understanding. What makes a city work? What makes a great city work? People who serve. Without servant love, the city collapses. So we reign with Jesus through serving. And no one may ever notice you. No one may ever tweet your name. But when you set your personal agenda aside, and for me, the greatest challenge is when I'm interrupted. When I'm interrupted, this, this is when the grossest stuff in me is exposed. When I'm interrupted and I, set, and, and I choose still to set my personal agenda aside for the interruption of the other, you are making the world go round in that moment. You are literally reigning with Christ. My goodness, I fail in this. By his grace, he continues to empower me to grow in this. And then number five, when we follow Jesus, we follow the one who will judge everyone according to what they've done. Has this thought ever overwhelmed you? And it's this, no one but Jesus gets to determine what happens to you after you die. 
You are completely, you're completely out of control of that. Not that you were ever fully in control before you died. It's an illusion most of the time. The only control Christ gives us is self-control. But no one gets to control what happens to you after you die, but Jesus. This is the point of the throne scene in Revelation 20. It says, then I saw a great white throne, him who is seated on it. Look at the underlying parts. The books were open, the dead were judged. Even the, the, the sea, everyone who sunk in a ship was raised and was judged and death was judged in Hades. And each person was judged according to what they had done. You guys, do you believe this about Jesus? Does this drive your motives? As Jesus followers, we follow the one to whom every human will one day give an account. Why is this important to think about? Because our actions reveal who we really trust. That's where all our deeds come from. We always act according to what we actually believe is God. So if money is my God, my deeds will show. If influence, if comfort, if fame is my God, my actions will show. If Jesus is my Lord, my actions will show. So I'll, I'll take this one step further. If Evan Wickham, if I truly believe Jesus is Lord, then I will gladly invite my discipleship community to judge my life. If I really believe Jesus is Lord, I'll gladly invite judgment in relationship. I'll regularly practice confession of sin and forgiveness and invite my community, my spiritual community, to see the deepest parts of me, to make sure, to help me make sure my deeds match what I say about Jesus. If I really believe Jesus sits on that throne, you guys, I need this. I need a community that will help me judge me as Christ-like or not. Do you believe this? Do you have this? If you believe Jesus is Lord, your actions will follow. There's no other way to do discipleship than this. Right away, I hear the questions, but didn't Jesus tell us not to judge each other, whatever? Absolutely, no one can condemn anyone else. No one can write anyone off. Only Jesus can make the final call. We're not called to judge each other without loving agreement to do so. An invitation. Because without that, it's just call-out culture. But to be part of Jesus' family of disciples is to agree to be part of a family that doesn't just call each other out, but calls each other higher. We're doing basics today. Our basics course is all about the community expectations in our church. 40 or 50 people are signed up, and this is what you will hear again if you come tonight. I, it, it, this is never a one-way call, it's a two-way street. I'm for you, you're for me. Are we in this or not? So I, Evan Wickham, cannot follow Jesus without a community I've invited into my life that can say, hey, Evan, like, as you're talking, I just sense anger and frustration about something. Are you doing okay? Or like, hey, Evan, dinner was great last night, but that extra glass of wine it may have been too much. What do you think? Do you have this in your life? I need this. Hey, I heard you talking to Sandy with a funny tone. I saw you snap at your kids. How's your marriage? How are your kids doing? Really, how are you doing with them? 
I don't just need the hard stuff. I need the good stuff too. Hey, Evan, I sense the Spirit wants to remind you of how specifically loved and what a gift you've been in the last three weeks. Here's two ways. Call out the gift that you are. I need this. You need this. I need the shared judgment of my intimate 9 to 16 who I've agreed to this two-way relationship with to call me into maturity. Have you noticed in community groups, they often devolve into the lowest mature denominator unless there's an agreement that's spoken to call higher in love and affirm the good things Jesus is doing. If we truly believe the white throne of Jesus, that Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead according to our deeds, if we really believe that, then we'll be lining up with our deeds to the spirit-led judgment and wisdom of our community. Are you doing, do you have that? This is why we call people in the community. And obviously, at the same time, we do this all trusting the greatest deed, and that is the deed of Christ on the cross to forgive our misdeeds. There's, There's limitless forgiveness for unhidden confession, limitless. It's the hidden stuff that really shows us who our God is. And he gives us, when we come unhidden, he gives us resurrection power to keep coming unhidden and keep growing into the goodness of Jesus. And then finally, to lead us to communion, number six and seven come come side by side. One, two punch at the end of this sermon. Six and seven is when we follow Jesus, we follow the one who takes us beyond the grave and has already built a new city for the human race. So, So just look at this. The end of the chapter, leading into chapter 21, then death and Hades. You have the next slide. Do you have that one? Yeah. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Death is gone. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name wasn't found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And then the next chapter starts. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, the first heaven and first earth passed away, no longer any sea, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. You guys, that is what we are waiting for. The grave itself consumed by the presence of God and a whole new city, a whole new way of being society. In fact, you guys, the city's already developed. It's already developed. It's already constructed. And it's coming. And it's coming through the agreement to live into it by his church. Now, ahead of time, you guys, we get to live into the values of the holy city. Now. And it is coming through our commitment to live like Jesus together. So this Advent, as we wrap, the the question is, what are we waiting for? There's two ways we can ask that question. We can be like, man, what are we waiting for? Let's think about the future. Or when we read Revelation and we read all these things that we have, we can be like, what the heck are we waiting for? We can live into this now. These are already true. What? Let's live into the city now. This Advent through generosity and through giving to your church and to the poor and hospitality to your neighbors and patience and kindness when we are interrupted. Again, 
so difficult, exposes the truth about us, patience and kindness, and then the creativity and love of a servant. That's how we're reigning. That's how the new Jerusalem, which is coming, also comes. And we get to live into it now ahead of time. So church, as we come to the table, what are you waiting for? Heavenly Father, we come to you now so grateful that you have invited us to share in the resurrection. So thankful that the good judge of all things is also the great infinite forgiver of all sin. Our job is to come unhidden. And so here we are, coming unhidden to the table, confessing sin, to community, confessing sin, and confessing joy. Both. It's what we're here for. Have your way in our church and our hearts. Bring your city through Park Hill Church, San Diego. And through all the churches of San Diego, through, through the Rock Church, continue bringing your city through Captivate. Continue bringing your city through the Catholic Church of San Diego and the bishop and the diocese of high churches, bring your city. Low churches, bring your city. House churches, beach churches, churches that meet in 200-year-old buildings, bring your city, God. Bless your people with your presence this Advent. May San Diego know how beautiful your city is. In Jesus' name, amen.